Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this special podcast from the Institute for Government. This month marks 300 years since the UK had its first Prime Minister. Robert Walpole, for whom the moniker Prime Minister was initially a criticism, is the man who most historians credit as our first PM. Since then, 55 people, only two of them women, have held the position. And yet, even after three decades, we are still debating what it is to be Prime Minister. Much has changed from being at the mercy of kings and queens to being at the mercy of opinion polls and inevitable elections. From managing factions in Parliament and in your Cabinet to skills in managing the huge edifice of government today. But would the past occupants recognise similarities in the role today? Are British Prime Ministers far too powerful or far too weak? And does the job need a fundamental makeover? I have a prime panel with me to discuss all this and more. First up is Anthony Selden, biographer of many prime ministers and most recently, The Impossible Office, his latest book just out on the history of the role. Anthony, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. I'm also delighted to be joined by Rosa Prince, journalist and editor of The House magazine and a biographer of Theresa May. Rosa, you wrote the book The Enigmatic Prime Minister in 2017. Did you hope then to get a bit more mileage out of May's time in office? <laughs> well, um, yes, it was a rocky ride, wasn't it? I mean, for my book sales, it might have been uh, interesting if she had stayed longer, perhaps uh, for the country and the um, ambitions of the Brexiteer, maybe not. Yeah, very good answer. Uh, with us as well is Ian Dale, broadcaster and author. Ian's book, The Prime Ministers, brings together essays on all 55 prime ministers by a host of politicians, journalists and historians. But Ian has also attempted to rank them all. Um, Ian, who are the harder to rank, the top five or the bottom five? Definitely the bottom five, because uh, inevitably people have their different views on what makes a good prime minister. But, I mean, how can you rank George Canning, who served for only three months, against a prime minister that may have served for five years? So it's incredibly difficult. Frankly, it's just a bit of fun. There's no, there's no academic rhyme or reason to it. No, but a bit of fun is always useful in this topic. And lastly, we're also pleased to have Francis Elliott, former political editor for The Times and now working for Engage Britain. Uh, Francis, you first wrote a biography of David Cameron in 2007. How certain were you then that you were writing about a prime minister in waiting? Well, actually, we started writing it on, in 2006, maybe even perhaps even uh, thinking about it in early 2005. No, not really. I mean, these things are always a bit of a punt um, uh, if you're writing about an opposition politician who you think may be prime minister. But, you know, he was interesting enough to to warrant um, proper explanation. Um, you know, th- at that time, it was it was a novelty that um, an old Etonian may come back to, to become a prime minister. People forget, but you know, it was a, ooh, how strange. Mm. It seems a very familiar trope still today. David Cameron still in the news at the moment as a former prime minister. So we may get into a bit about what prime ministers do out of office and whether they should do a bit less, perhaps. Um, Anthony, can we start just talking a bit about the powers of the prime minister? This is something that you and I have talked about a fair bit. You attempt to trace the differences between Walpole in 1721 and Johnson today. What's changed the most and what surprised you that has not really changed? Well, uh, Kath, what surprised me is, in a way, how the little things that have changed, because I was brought up, I, I read politics at A-level and university and was a 
politics teacher teaching all the time that the PM has become more and more powerful, that the monarchy was all powerful back in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, that it's all about the PM becoming presidential. And really, only when I started writing this book and thinking about it um, in recent years, did it occur to me, Kath, that, that in fundamental ways, Walpole and today Boris Johnson are alike, not just uh, they went to the same school, uh, Eton, they went to the same university, Oxford, they both nearly died after a year in office. They're both so alike in temperament uh, uh, and circumstance, coming chances, coming to power after a, a, an extraordinary turbulence in the political system that threatened to be a tsunami sweeping uh, everybody aside, uh, Brexit and, and South Sea bubble, respectively. But, you know, what do they do? Uh, they keep the nation safe. Uh, they keep uh, the nation's finances secure. They keep a majority in parliament. They appoint the people to do the work uh, with the patronage powers. They oversee uh, a government. Um, the, the similarities were far more evident to me, Kath, when you go into it. And in many ways, uh, Walpole had far more significant powers and far fewer restraints uh, than Boris Johnson has 300 years later. That's fascinating. Ian, can I bring you in at this point? I mean, what about the skills that a prime minister needs to sort of succeed in this? I mean, this is, as, as Anthony sort of you know alluded there, it's still a bit of an amorphous role. A lot of your powers come from political patronage, so we can assume political skills are up there. But what else makes for a good prime minister? Luck. I think, I think all, all successful prime ministers have an element of luck. Being in the right place at the right time. Jim Callaghan wasn't in the right place at the right time. Um, it, it's arguable whether Boris was or not. I, I think we'll, we'll know that at the end of his premiership. But also, a, a lot of these skills that you need are exactly the same, apart from the fact that you don't have to ingratiate yourself with the monarch anymore. Um, up until Queen Victoria's reign, um, you, you could be dismissed by the monarch. And so you had to maintain good terms. Otherwise, you were liable to get fired. Nowadays, of course, you have to ingratiate yourself with the electorate. The electorate in the 1700s and to a certain extent the 1800s was almost irrelevant. You, you didn't have to pander to voters in the way that you certainly have to now. You didn't be able to handle the modern media is absolutely vital for the role. Uh, even going back 60 or 70 years, Clement Attlee, for example, and um, Anthony wrote the chapter in my book on Clement Attlee, I don't know whether he agrees with this, but Clement Attlee could not become Prime Minister now because he would not be capable of handling the modern media. And it would be interesting to know how some of the 18th, 19th century Prime Ministers would have handled the media. I suspect Disraeli would have absolutely loved it, mm. um, but possibly Gladstone might not have been quite so adept at it. Yeah, I had a great conversation on Twitter a few weeks back about which former prime minister would have made the best tweeter. And many people thought that Disraeli would have been up there, but it would have been I quite obtuse so. at times. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rosa, can we talk a bit about the circumstances? I mean, Ian's just talked about luck, but many prime ministers expected to be better at the job when they got it, but were waylaid by events, the famous phrase from, from Macmillan's time. Certainly Eden and Theresa May, perhaps even Callaghan and Ted Heath, and obviously Johnson's first year quickly became all about dealing with a major pandemic. Do you think some prime ministers do just get lucky or particularly unlucky? Was Theresa May um, very unlucky with what hit, you know, during her time in office or, or was it all of her own creation? 
Well, funny enough, going going back to what Ian has said about handling the media, Theresa May wasn't very good at handling the media. And in a way, that didn't matter um, as she rose to power. But when she was prime minister, it, it certainly did. Um, yeah, I, I, she wasn't quite unlucky because she, she came to office knowing full well that she was going to have to deal with with Brexit. And it turned out perhaps she wasn't as equipped at dealing with her party and dealing with the media and the public as, as she perhaps had hoped. I mean, one thing I think that might be interesting for us to think about is whether being leader of the opposition is good preparation. Mm. And if we look back at who the strongest characters are, I mean, many of those leaders of the op- opposition did turn out to be rather strong prime ministers, um, like Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, it seems that being a sort of holding a great office of state, um, being chancellor in the case of uh, Gordon Brown or being Home Secretary as uh, Theresa May was, maybe isn't the best preparation, although you would, might think it would be because you're operating at the highest level, you're dealing with civil servants, you're taking big decisions. But I wonder if you end up getting a bit of tunnel vision and what a prime minister really needs is a kind of breadth rather than depth, um, the ability to look at the whole picture. And perhaps that was why Theresa May struggled once she got, I mean, like Gordon Brown, she very much wanted to be prime minister and thought she'd be better prime minister than those who had gone before her, um, as Gordon Brown did as well. And, and when they got there, they found it wasn't as easy as they had considered it would be. No, I think that's a very good point. And one of the things I've written about in the past is that learning how to use number 10 to your advantage is very different from from using a different office, whether it's being in opposition and, um, you know, the leader's office there, or whether it's being a secretary of state. Um, Francis, can I come to you on this? I mean, is the prime minister actually, you know, too powerful or not powerful enough? And how much does sort of number 10 play a role in that? Do they have enough support? Um, I think the prime minister, I, I, I think the centre is is it's not a question of well look put it this way i think the cabinet ministers are not powerful enough i think that there is a there is a um i think there's an open question about whether or not the center could do a better job of coordinating policy but i think that we are drifting towards a sort of a kind of american system of um executive power concentrated at, at the center but it just doesn't do it very well and it robs um I mean, when was the last kind of real Secretary of State who actually made something of their department and, and you can say, you know, transform policies? It's hard to think of, of one. Perhaps George Osborne as Chancellor, but since then, I mean, who, who else has really kind of managed to, to grow Gove. underneath that, that? Gove? When? when? What? Uh, justice? Uh, education, I think perhaps? In justice, I think in education. Perhaps, uh, yeah. Yeah. Been, as well. It's been a while. There haven't been that many, have they, And if you no. think about it? Um, no, I mean you, you, you need know, the transformation, the kind of poison, the the, the, the kind of the spreading, the, the the oak tree of of under which nothing grows, um, and it doesn't do a very good job in any case. I think there's a, you know, it's not a question about the distribution of power as if power was a sort of zero sum game. It's mm. that it's that the system isn't really functioning well enough to devolve power to those um, departments where it could most kind of profitably be devolved and centralise where it should definitely be centralised. It's, it's you know, the Cabinet Office, the Cabinet, the cabinet Office itself, which is supposed to be the kind of brain organising intelligence of Whitehall, you know, it's just become a kind of a mirror for its dysfunctionality. I, I can't quite now remember how many DGs there were. I would think it was Director Generals. I think it was, is it, are we up to 24? I mean, you know, Cummings had a point, Dominic Cummings had a point about wanting to kind of remodel all that. 
and yet I think that's all been forgotten. And you know, every incoming uh, cabinet secretary will say, "Oh, do you really want to bother machinery of government? It's all too difficult. Let's not bother." And and on 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 we go in this kind of Heath Robinson's type contraption. Mm. Ian, I mean, that point um, about cabinet government, I mean, last year we saw the Prime Minister go into intensive care and the government carrying on without him made much of us being governed by a cabinet, uh, not just by a Prime Minister. But does cabinet government really exist? Well, it, it does, but it depends on the people who are in the cabinet and they obviously are chosen by the Prime Minister. Now, what we've got now is a Prime Minister who has chosen a cabinet that is basically just loyal to him. He's got very few people in there who you can imagine causing trouble for him, and certainly not overtly. Whereas you look back in history and all of the strong prime ministers picked cabinets that had a lot of their, I would say political opponents, but political rivals. And you look at Attlee's cabinet, um, there were lots of big beasts in that who all wanted his job. Jim Callaghan, um, exactly the same. Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, she never had a majority in her own cabinet. Um, and, and Boris Johnson is, I think, I mean, I can't remember but the last time that a prime minister had a cabinet that was so supine. And as Francis said, there aren't many transformational characters in there. And, and that's deliberate. Um, he doesn't want transformational ministers. He wants ministers who will obey the diktats of number 10. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if over time, one or two cabinet ministers actually do uh, get a voice. Anthony, in your book, you trace quite closely the relationship with the um, Chancellor. Obviously, Prime Minister is first Lord of the Treasury, and some of them actually held the the post of Chancellor as well. Uh, Is that sort of the key relationship that has evolved over time, uh, the sort of separation of the Chancellor? How important is that? Very significant, Cass. So the Foreign Secretary used to be the big beast, uh, Castlereagh, Palmerston, um, Gray himself, Edward Gray, before the first and during the First World War, giants. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, very much third or fourth in the government, and the PM was also the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, uh, Warpole was all the way through to 1841, when Peel and his second administration uh, cast it aside, cast off the Treasury, and progressively, since then, 1878, Disraeli going to Berlin, first time the PM travelled abroad as a Foreign Secretary, Lloyd George, during uh, the Great War and the Paris Peace Treaties, and then a whole series of conferences afterwards, upstaging the Foreign Secretary, and progressively what we've seen in the 20th and early 21st century is the PM taking over the the Foreign Secretary job and ignoring uh, what they should be doing, um, which is economic and domestic policy and spending decisions. Uh, Number 10 hopelessly outgunned against the mighty uh, Treasury and an ill ill balance occurring um, with no constitutional justification. The PM needs to be what it says on the tin and on the brass door, the first Lord of the Treasury. They have no business to be so involved in foreign policy with disastrous consequences consequences from Suez in 56, the Iraq war in 03, the Libyan adventure in 2011, without the resource uh, in there. The pivotal point was when Charles Pohl was uh, Thatcher's 
foreign affairs private secretary from 1983, carried on to 1991, first year of John Major. So we have a very ill-balanced uh, premiership towards foreign policy where they're baleful and they didn't do what they should have been doing, which was to uh, oversee a sensible strategy for Britain. National Security Council has brought a bit of power back into number 10, but we need to have the PM again. We need the Chancellor back in uh, their box, the PM, for better or worse, uh, being the pivotal, pivotal figure, while also, I agree with what everyone uh, is uh, has been saying, but picking up on just Francis's point, um, we have an enfeebled um, uh, series of big beasts. They're not big beasts. Uh, they're, they're, they're little wimps. Um, and we need to have, for the system to work, we need to have not so much the treasurer, the chancellor, but we need to have the big beasts in the other departments, foreign secretary uh, included, home secretary, much bigger, but whom Rose has written so well on Theresa May. Um, and uh, so that will balance uh, a much better uh, government uh, and a much better uh, policy and allow more PMs to make an impact because, frankly, their impact uh, in the last few years has been shallow, uh, barely scratched the surface. Only one um, historic prime minister in the 70 years since Clement Attlee. Okay, well, I mean, prime ministers aren't acting alone. They're obviously, yes, okay, there's the cabinet, but there's also the advisers. Rosa, I mean, we've already mentioned Dominic Cummings, Theresa May also famously had some quite, um, shall we call them big beasts, um, as her advisers. That was certainly a theme of her time in office. They had to depart after she lost the general election. Uh, is that the change that's happened, especially in recent years, that, you know, special advisers, those in and around the prime minister, become more important than cabinet ministers? Absolutely. The, the role of special advisor is a fascinating one in our political system. And it's kind of crept in there without anyone really noticing. I mean, I think Wilson was the first to, to have these advisers. Um, it very much grew under Tony Blair. And it seems that a particularly prime ministerial weakness that they feel that they perhaps can't rely on their colleagues or they can't rely on the civil service um, to the extent that they need their sort of own personal champion. And they have proved spectacularly bad at picking the right person for them. So, um, as you say, I know a lot about Theresa May's too, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. And I think they gave her what she didn't have, which in Nick Timothy's case was that he was a big thinker. He had lots of ideas. He was very strategic. And she perhaps wasn't the most ideological of, of, of prime ministers. And, and she felt the, the lack of that. So she brought him there and he could, could give her the, ide the ideas and give her the, the vision. And Fiona Hill was a very strong character in, in dealing with her colleagues, um, Theresa May is quite a reticent figure. She didn't really like having confrontations and Fiona Hill really did. So she was able to go out to bat for her. And that just rubbed people up the wrong way spectacularly in all sorts of ways. Um, as you say, Dominic Cummings has that role for, had that role for Boris Johnson at the start of his premiership, went disastrously wrong. These are people who are unaccountable. They've never been elected. Um, they can often be a bit younger than the prime minister they're serving and perhaps a bit more bullish. Um, they've not had to go through all the processes an MP has to go through to get selected. You know, that can be years of work. Um, then to serve on the back benches, then to work your way up through the ministerial ranks. Special advisors are just shot in there, often with not much experience, not much life experience beyond politics. They've probably been working for the party or they've been an advisor in a, in a department or even an opposition. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, 
spads are quite a malign influence in in our politics, but one that prime ministers feel the need to have around them. Ian, would you agree with that? I mean, is it partly because the job is just too big for one individual, so they've got to have others who can do, you know, they can delegate aspects to? Well, I don't agree with that at all. I think all prime ministers need advisors. And the advantage at the moment is that we actually know who they are. Whereas if you go back in time, um, most prime ministers have a little coterie of people that they take advice from, some formal, some not so formal, and we have no idea who they are. But the idea that this has only happened ever since Tony Blair or Harold Wilson um, you go back in time and virtually every prime minister has these sort of people. Um, Joseph Chamberlain, um, uh, sorry, Neville Chamberlain had uh, Joseph Ball. You had Gladstone, who had such a powerful advisor, who I think actually, to be fair, was a civil servant. But in those days, uh, a prime minister only had one uh, advisor. But the first thing that Lord Rosebery did when he came to power was to get rid of this guy because he knew that he would be trying to control the government. And, and I suspect, and Anthony may know more about this than I do. But I suspect if you, if you go back way into the um, 19th and 18th centuries, and you would find these characters that each prime minister has had. It's, it's just that at the time, nobody really knew who they were. Uh, Ian is absolutely right. All the way back, indeed, to Warpole, uh, we didn't hear too much about uh, the Dominic Cummingses and Nick Timothy's Fiona Hills of Walpole's Day, but my goodness, uh, they were in there. They had uh, their fingers on the uh, on the underside of the um, the vital organs of the body politics and gripped it very, very tight. But I suppose the key difference is that when Alistair Campbell was given the authority to direct civil servants, and now that they are formalised, they are the person there day in day out with the prime minister, rather than the civil servant or the cabinet minister who they might you know it's or well if they have a sort of mate down the pub who they can consult but this is somebody who's formalized effectively into the constitution but why not i mean alistair campbell was brilliant at what he did are are you arguing that alistair campbell shouldn't have been in that position I, i wonder if there should be such a formal role for someone who doesn't have much accountability i mean we sort of know what happened afterwards from from his diaries it seems quite a strange conduit to the public rather than having someone who can appear before Parliament, appear before select committees, take responsibility for their decisions. I think it's a balancing act, isn't it? This is something we were debating when Dominic Cummings was still in office of should he be more accountable to Parliament? Should he be you know, able to answer questions? Because he was certainly directing a lot of the SPAD network at that time. And, you know, effectively, it was a sort of parallel operation to the prime minister with his ministers that that um, Cummings was was able to sort of give instructions out to departments through special advisors and how the constitutional role that special advisors have, the limits on their role, does allow for that sort of stuff. But at the same time, if they're exerting power, Parliament should have a right to sort of question and to, uh, to ask it them. It, it not necessarily. So special advice. Yeah, but special advisors were to some extent exempt from going on them. Uh, it was very much of their, they're not the same as accounting officers, permanent secretaries, and they're not the same as ministers. So there wasn't an ability for, for um, select committees to be able to sort of force them to go. You're really very dependent upon the sort of the whim of them. Um, anyway, let's, lo- let's move us on a little bit to, to talk about another aspect of getting stuff done. I mean, um, Blair famously said that, you know, he was at his most powerful when he knew least how to use it. We've talked a little bit about working the machine um, and sort of understanding how it all 
um, operates and so forth. Is there more that we need to do to help prime ministers get to grips with the job? Um, or is it something that has just got to be adjusted to their particular style and, and way of working? Um, Francis, can I come to you on yeah, that? Yeah, sure. No, I, I really think that there is a lot to be said about that. I mean, it's an interesting point that leaders of the opposition, you know, uh, I think tend possibly you know, to, 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 to do the job a bit better. Certainly at the start, they've, they've had some, they've had some time to think about it. They've had some, um, track record of managing their party and balancing that out with policy and the trade-offs that, 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 um, that require from that. But, but for sure, uh, I mean, there is the, the whole, um, transition process, which the IFG I think helps with, doesn't it a bit, um, you know, could be, there could be a lot more of that. Uh, um, but it's kind of goes back to my point about, you know, a, a cabinet office that, that actually kind of does what it's supposed to do, um, and provide us all organizing intelligence. Um, you know, you, you can see, I think Johnson absolutely got kind of got, got taught a lesson in, um, in how he needed to, uh, you know, just confronting and cajoling and abusing the civil service was not ever going to deliver amazingly um, what uh, the kind of complex, ta- multivarious task of administration that you need to, on top of whatever other political project that you you have to, you know, you, you want to prosecute. Um, and his recent appointments, I'm thinking particularly of the chief of staff, Dan Rosenfeld, who's a um, who is sort of absolute dial in the wall kind of Treasury Route One um, former uh, private secretary, isn't he? Um, principal private secretary. So you know he, he's he's turned to the classic Treasury you know machine operator to get the machine working, um, and you know and what it took him a year, you know, and and what and what a year to have lost. I mean, okay, you might say, wasn't that I mean, bad? COVID you know, probably would have waylaid anyway. Would have waylaid it a bit, but yeah. I mean, I bet he, you know, if he was honest, would say, oh, you know, that was a, you know, that was a, that was a, a daft kind of cul-de-sac that I went round and, and lost some time. Um, and you know, if it comes to him being judged against his record in mm. four or five years' time, you know, that that may be properly consequential because the things that you know. What, what is obvious is that you need a long, you need luck and you need time and you need money to make the kind of change that people actually notice and appreciate and get you re-elected. And he, wasted, and, he definitely wasted some. Anthony, I mean, this is something we've talked about, the, the danger that prime ministers coming in and they try and reinvent number 10 to suit their purposes rather than learning the lessons of how their predecessors used it. Is this a problem that prime ministers face that they're often driven by trying to better their predecessors and and sort of show how they're going to do things differently rather than learning lessons from them? Kat, it, it is. They need to have much more humility. They come in, they trash uh, their uh, predecessors. I won't go down the list, but I can go, could go more time to 20 PMs who've just trashed um, uh, the person who's gone before rather than trying to understand um, even the portraits that they pass every day 
uh, on the staircase at number 10 and reflect on them. The, the unwillingness to learn, uh, I agree completely with what Francis is saying about and the work of the Institute for Government has done great work in helping people prepare. Let's just take one case study, Tony Blair, who says uh, that it took him a long time and he needed his first term. There's an awful lot uh, of rewriting of history uh, with Blair and, and the Blair team. In fact, he squandered his first term when he had the most political capital because he trashed uh, the Dominic Cummingses and the Steve Hiltons and uh, of, of their day, um, the campaigning spads who get you into office and not the people who you then need to help you govern. They're brilliant people, but they're not governing people. Uh, he trashed the civil service. The head of the civil service, Robin Butler, was dismissed as old buttleshanks, and they sneered whenever and giggled whenever he tried talking to them. They're rewriting that uh, now, but that is what happened. He had that opportunity in his first term. He says a prime minister needs 10 years. You don't. Um, of uh, what I describe as the nine landmark, truly historic um, uh, prime ministers who uh, made the weather, made history, um, they uh, were very significant in that they were all there for more than uh, uh, five years. But some, uh, uh, like Peel, for example, and Clement Attlee, who Ian Dale mentioned, were only there for five or just over five years. If you know what you're doing, then you can get on with it. But, Kath, to finish uh, this point, uh, prime ministers today often don't know what they want to do, what they are, are there in uh, as prime minister to do. Cameron would be a prime example. And also they don't know how to do it. Blair in learned principally under Andrew Adonis, former uh, head of the IFG. Uh, uh, he schooled him in what to do. But if you don't know what you want to do as PM, nor do you know how to be PM, well, is it surprising so many of them have fluttered and buzzed around and skimmed the surface? Ian, would you agree with that? I mean, do, um, do they need more advice early on? Or is it just hard for them to listen to everyone? They've, they've got to the top job finally, and they, they need to sort of keep that um, blinkered focus um, on what they're trying to do. What's the, what's the challenge there? Well, this is quite a difficult one, because if you look at prime ministers who have had a lot of experience before they become prime minister, Gordon Brown, for example, um, he we all thought that he would have an agenda for government, but it turned out that he didn't. Uh, Jim Callaghan had been held all of the three main offices of state, um, but but we couldn't really translate that into being an effective prime minister. Anthony Eden, uh, another one who most people would say was one of our worst prime ministers. Um, so I, I'm not sure that experience counts for a, necessarily a huge amount. Um, but I mean, Tony Blair recently said that he felt like a fan managing Manchester United when he first became prime minister. Well, up to a point, Lord Copper, right? I thought that was said more for effect than anything else. He, he, uh, the, the civil service certainly had um, held sessions with Blair and Brown and, and other future Labour cabinet ministers before they came to power in 1997. The fact that he wasted his first term, and he, he's confessed that himself, he had a majority of 179. He could have been truly transformational in that first term. But and, and there were things that they changed, but um, it, it was a wasted four years in in many ways. Mm. 
But I mean, uh, um, Blair's an interesting one to looking at that because this is all a lot of this is about legacy of prime ministers, isn't it? And it's an interesting question how much of that legacy is then rewritten, as it were, once they're out of office. Um, but Blair, I mean, he did achieve devolution, lots of changes in terms of numeracy, literacy skills, and you know, t- schools generally. Uh, it wasn't like there was nothing going on in that first term. So it's some of this about ambition and that maybe prime ministers need to be a bit more, when we say prioritise what they want to do, actually think that there's there's less they can do and really focus in on what is reasonable to try and achieve in, in their time in office. Ian, come back to you on that. Um, well, going back to Blair again, he could have driven the euro policy through, I think, if he really wanted to. Okay, his Chancellor Gordon Brown wasn't much in favour of it, but if they had had that as a policy going into the election, I mean, they probably wouldn't have won such a big majority, but that would have been a truly transformational thing to have done. It would have completely changed British history. I doubt whether there would have been a Brexit referendum in 2016 had that happened. We shall never know. Um, but he... he And you're right, there were things that that government did. I'm not saying that it didn't do anything at all, but it wasn't as radical as it could have been. And I think some prime ministers don't quite understand the power of their majorities. Margaret Thatcher certainly did when when she was prime minister. Um, But you you go back in time and maybe governments with big majorities, that there is a trend that maybe they're not as radical as they could be. Francis, can I talk to you also about this legacy question? Because it's, a, it's one I've been asked uh, in recent weeks talking about prime ministers as, you know, Cameron in particular. Um, will he now forever be remembered for the referendum, for losing the referendum, for Brexit occurring and all of that? Or will the legacy of other things that happened in his time of office still play a part in, in how historians think of him? Oh, I think Brexit is always going to be like first on the chart sheet for Cameron, um, there's no, there's, there's, you know, he, he, he might think play two, one, one, lost one in terms of keeping winning indie ref one. Um, but I, I think, uh, I, you know, I think the truth is that history will see him as the, as the man that, um, held a referendum for party political purposes to keep his party together, um, arrogantly thought he could win it, lost it, um, and separate on a fundamentally different path ever since. Um, you know, the late unpleasantness with his little lobbying kind of um, affair uh, um, will be a footnote um, at the end um, um, of, a, of a rather inglorious chapter that starts with the B word. And well, Anthony, let's talk a little bit about um, that and the... Obviously, uh, accusations about David Cameron lobbying the government um, over uh, the Greensill saga that's ongoing in the news at the moment. I mean, if we go back to our first prime minister, Robert Walpole, he was accused of corruption and patronage. Um, but at that time, it seems that was part of what sustained him in power. Is there, you know, a wider theme here about the dividing line between what's political patronage that is essential to the role and what is abuse of power? Bring it on would have been uh, Walpole's uh, response. He loved manipulating people. It, it, it got him out of bed in the morning. He accumulated enormous uh, wealth. Look at the uh, images of him. Look at uh, his um, the, the pictures of his home at Houghton Hall, uh, stuffed with the riches of uh, and glories of office. So, yeah, I mean, a different time, but you don't have to judge um, uh, political leaders against the mores of the time. And that was where um, David Cameron was naive. 
Uh, not least talking about um, following the expenses scandal, cleaning up politics. When he left as an MP, he talked about the good works he was going to do. You set yourself up for a fall and you are uh, simply naive. And I think there was something that was naive about him. He was protected when he was in number 10 by the machine, but left on his own. Um, and it's an uncomfortable life. It's hard enough being PM, but to be a post-PM uh, is even more difficult, as Boris uh, one day will find. Um, so we need, obviously, new codes. Um, yeah, sure. Um, sure, Cass. I mean, um, uh, Warpole wouldn't last a day uh, with the Francis Elliott um, uh, uh, when, if, when he was political editor of the Times. The level of scrutiny. <laughs> uh, with a level of scrutiny, and quite rightly not. I think Walpole would change. probably dance a merry jig around me, but yeah, yeah. it's nice of you to say so. Dressing in the vision of Francis with a Georgian wig on. <laughs> I think I carried off very well. I mean, Rosa, I mean, you know, uh, Rosa, who's written so brilliantly about uh, Theresa May, I mean, I, you know, she surely is not going to fall in the, into the same trap as uh, other post-PMs, uh, or maybe she will, uh, uh, but I would think not. I don't know. What do you think, Rosa? I cannot imagine <laughs> Theresa May falling victim to a, a lobbying scandal or any kind of scandal, really. Um, I, I don't think, though, that she quite knows what her legacy is going to be. I mean, obviously, mm. she didn't intend to only serve three years, and it was a, a three years where she truly was buffeted around and and basically spent each day trying to get to the end of the day rather than having any kind of vision for what she wanted to achieve in office and I mean perhaps we can talk about this uh, it's interesting what prime ministers go on to do I mean she mm. she unusually has stayed in the in the commons um, she's a bit of a thorn in the side for for Boris Johnson still isn't she which is very rare there's only really Ted Heath with Margaret Thatcher who, who who's done that in recent decades yeah, you wouldn't think it would be a kind of role model to follow the, the Heath example, but Theresa May seems to be running with it at the moment. I had thought she would kind of want to pop up on, on sort of worthy issues, I don't know, diabetes or, or women and violence, but she seems prepared to be a bit punchier than that. Um, so, yeah, I, I wonder if she'll try and have a kind of post number 10 career. It's still relatively early days. And, and she said to really sort of love sense the chamber. something more. It's it's said by her friends that she really does sort of love the chamber, um, mm. which is which is odd given that she um, she had such a torrid time in it. Um, and, and, yes, you think she never want to go back again? Dispatch performer. I mean, let's face it; she wasn't. She had her moments, but she wasn't great at the dispatch box. But she's, you know, she it is it is quite rather lovely to see that there is a bit of a moment when she gets up on that that chair of hers, that seat of hers is it three rows back. Kind of customary reserved for um, mm. for former prime ministers. Uh, I can't remember now which MP had the temerity to sit in it the other day, but it was hilarious. But anyway, when she when she rises to to her feet and um, you know she's delivered some pretty withering interventions. She's much better at intervening on other people than she was at the dispatch box. But then I guess she's had plenty of experience. I mean, I I for one like you know I really I think it's to be applauded. Um, you know, uh, MPs who stick around in the chamber afterwards. I think too many have cut and run. Um, you know, we used to play a kind of a, a game in the Times Parliamentary Room about what, what if, what if Haig had stuck around and hadn't mm. gone. You know, he would have, he'd have, he'd have, he would have really given Boris a run for his money uh, on the leadership. Um, 
you know, is 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 Cameron really been well served by jetting around on on finances, private jets? Not particularly. I think he regretted that. Would that be any worse than than than, than sticking around? I mean, you know, the 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 life cycle. It's interesting, you know, you've kind of got Jeremy Hunt now who's making a, you know, a really good name for himself as a chair of select committee as a former cabinet minister. You know, is it impossible to imagine that a prime minister could then end up as a sort of chair of a powerful select committee? It shouldn't be. Mm. Cameron actually had intended to stay, but I think he found that everything he said was picked over so much that it, he just thought it was going to be impossible. And that's the only reason that he really decided to go. He wanted to stay uh, as an MP. And I mean, obviously, I mean, it's very rare nowadays that uh, a politician can come back and maybe take over as prime minister. That has happened once or twice in the, in the past. But how, how can staying in parliament ever match actually being prime minister and running in the country, running the country? And particularly yeah, when but, MPs are fairly young. I mean, office. I was told that when, sorry, I was told that when, you know, when, when Dave finished, <laughs> a friend of his said, I said, what's he doing? He said, oh, he's spending out how to work his Apple TV, playing tennis and sleeping mm. on the sofa. I mean, you know, yes, okay, it is a it is a sort of status check. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a moment of kind of, you know, you kind of see them queuing up for coffee in Portcullis House and you think, my goodness, how the, how the march have fallen. But then you get used to it and they keep on rocking on and they're doing kind of public service, visibly holding the government to account, visibly trying, still trying to make the world a you know, Britain a better place, and you and not enriching themselves necessarily exclusively on the on the lecture circuit, and I, I think that's to be applauded. We have, a, we have a lot to learn from the Americans in this about how they treat their former presidents, and I know the mm. two roles are slightly different. Um, but I mean, it's probably we haven't got time to go into it now. But you, you look at what former presidents do when they leave office, and it's very different to former UK prime ministers. Yeah, Anthony, is this a very new phenomenon that, that prime ministers are, are finishing the job earlier in their lives and therefore going on to having a, a very different career afterwards? Absolutely. As everyone is saying, Cass, so uh, in the 18th and 19th century, your first shot uh, as a prime minister could often be a forerunner to a much better and longer second period. Um, Robert Peel, for example, would be an example of that. In the 20th century, several came back or went on to other jobs like uh, Balfour, prime minister at the beginning of the century, became better known as a foreign secretary, not least with the Balfour uh, declaration. Um, the last prime minister to come back as prime minister, the only one after the war, was Harold Wilson, who came back for a pretty um, diminished swan song uh, as prime minister between 74 to 76. But some did come back into other roles, most uh, recently Douglas Hume, who was a very successful foreign secretary mm. uh, from 70 to 74. So, so as everybody's saying, Kath, you know, there are no, more um, uh, uh, former prime ministers uh, now alive, or as many or more than at any point in history, and they are younger, Blair and Cameron, two youngest prime ministers for over 150 years. So they, you know, and nobody comes into being prime minister who isn't deeply ambitious to expect them to sit on their hands is uh, obviously naive. They're going to want to do things. They won't go back into politics now. Uh, that uh, norm of behaviour has changed forever. They do want to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. They haven't made money, certainly, uh, in the way that Walpole did uh, in politics. But there needs to be much better uh, uh, procedures. And I think a clearer expectation as 
Ian Dale is talking about there, that they're going to have, um, and, and as Francis, uh, uh, and as Rosie was saying with Theresa May, there has to be a sense that, you know, they've be, to have been a prime minister is a great honour. And being a former prime minister, they need to uphold the dignity of their office and to do some works at least, uh, which add to uh, the, the nation and use in a perfectly acceptable way the contacts, the expertise, experiences they've had to better the nation. Of course, Blair tried to do that, but it hasn't uh, uh, worked out very well. But that should nevertheless be our expectation with a new code of conduct. Some of the um, weaker prime ministers have sort of made quite a good job of being a post-prime minister, rather better Mm. than the ones who were the stronger prime ministers. So I, I, I do think that Tony Blair and David Cameron have been sort of casting around for a role in life ever since whereas John Major, Gordon Brown, Theresa May they they have managed to pull off the kind of dignified thing of of being an elder statesman um rather better it's interesting I wonder if it it means more to them that they have been prime minister than than the the ones who were stronger and really relished the actual job rather than the office I think you're being a bit unfair on Tony Blair. I think um, his job in the Middle East, that was a very, very serious job. Uh, The creation of his uh, organisation, the Tony Blair Institute, I think that's done some amazing work on all sorts of different issues. But he, he, he's a sort of, because of Iraq, he's never been able to move on from that. So even his Middle East workers carried the taint. And he's, he, he sort of, when he pops up to proclaim on a matter, everyone kind of groans, where in a way that they don't when, for example, John Major pops up or, yeah, that, or even these days Theresa May. I'm sorry, but that's coloured by people's own politics. If you think the Iraq war was a massive disaster and you hate Tony Blair, obviously you're going to uh, criticise what he's done afterwards. But I think if you look at it from a neutral perspective, I think he's done a lot of good things since he left office. Well, I think from a neutral perspective that he generally is, in retrospect, seen as an unpopular war and one that tainted his legacy. Francis, shall we, uh, just finishing up, I'd like to go round quickly and just talk about this legacy point. Who's the Prime Minister who you think their reputation needs to be revised upwards a little bit? Um, who's who uh, Gordon overlooked? Brown, probably. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, you know, uh, he, he, he did stabilise, um, he did play a kind of key role in the, in the global financial, financial crisis. Press, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, Given how low his reputation fell, I think a bit of course correction there. I mean, I'm not saying he's a titan, but um, I thought he, he, you know, we were beginning to see what I always expected, which was a, you know, a correction on that. It was um, David Cameron would not have enjoyed being elected on morality by David, by by Gordon Brown, that's for sure. Ian, what about you? Who's the prime minister whose reputation you'd like to rehabilitate a bit? I'm going to go back in time and uh, pick Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman who most people know nothing about whatsoever. He was only Prime Minister for three years. But it was actually he that started all of the social reforms that Asquith and Lloyd George got all the credit for. Um, All of the pensions, uh, ideas, the unemployment benefit, that all started under Campbell Bannerman, and he gets no credit for it whatsoever. Rosa, what about you? Well, I'm going to have to say Theresa May, aren't I? I mean, I, I don't think she was a, a, one of the great prime ministers, but I think she was dealt a, a very difficult hand. And I, I think that she wasn't probably well treated by a lot of her cabinet and certainly by her parliament. And um, I, I wonder if history will be a bit kinder to her. Anthony, what about you? You've got 55 to choose from. 
I would say, uh, Kath, that we look too much at prime ministers. Great prime ministers are made by great events. They're all there at a time of um, wars or crises. Um, so, so the events make the leader uh, more than the leader makes the events. That said, I will go for Neville Chamberlain. I like the, uh, all the other ones, but to me, Neville Chamberlain is the most wronged, uh, obviously, for appeasement and not doing more to prepare the country. But in terms of what he did in an extraordinarily enlightened and compassionate way um, and helping to, to bring Labour into a parliamentary um, uh, Westminster uh, democracy uh, with Baldwin and to steady the country, um, he, he would be uh, my favourite. He uh, Just finishing, he was one of those brought who did carry on serving. Churchill invited him to stay on and he served until November 1940 when he died of the cancer that was already uh, affecting him. Tragic story. Can, can I just make one other nomination? Because um, if you go back to Lord, Lord North, one of the things that came out of Nicky Morgan's essay in my book is that I had imagined that Lord North, having lost the colonies, was nothing to say in favour of him at all. But he was Prime Minister for 12 years. And domestically, he was actually quite successful. But it's a bit like saying Richard Nixon was a great president, if you forget Watergate. Mm. Mm, that's always the problem, though, isn't it, for prime ministers? <laughs> right. Well, that sounds like a good point to stop. Uh, the first 300 years of British prime ministers covered in under an hour. Thank you very much to Francis Elliott, Rosa Prince, Ian Dale and Anthony Selden. Great to speak Thank to you, you all. And a shameless plug alert, Anthony's book is available in all good bookshops or online if you can't get out to a bookshop, even though they're back open again, uh, as is Ian's. And I'm sure you can pick up Rosa's Theresa May biography and Francis's books on David Cameron while you're out and about. All essential reading. If you enjoyed this podcast and do check out our weekly Inside Briefing podcast and the other great content on our IFG live feed, we've got a great new show on the art of reshuffles, something all prime ministers have to do from time to time. You can find our shows on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. No predictions on how long our current prime minister will last or who will be next, but there'll be much more to say and more to write about. So here's to the next 300 years of them. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.